Let's open our Bibles together to uh, the book of Esther. This morning we're going to get through the heart of this story. I'm not going to be able to finish the last several chapters. You'll have to read those on, on your own. We begin our missions emphasis next week, so uh, we'll pick up there. But we'll at least get through the, the, the main point, everything that this story is building up to this morning in, in the story of Esther. The theme that continues to run through this narrative is one of God's providence. And uh, I hope that you will uh, remember God's providence. If uh, we've looked at this over and over again, I think each week, providence, pro, pro meaning ahead or before, vecchia mean to see. And so when we're talking about the providence of God, theologically we're talking about God, God, our God, who sees ahead of us, who sees before us, and he sees to us. He's faithful to care for us, and so he's worthy of our trust. And I've said this before, I need to be reminded of that over and over again in life because it bolsters my faith, that whatever I'm experiencing in my life, that I can be reminded that God is ahead of me, God is faithful. And he's going to care for us. So God's providence. The book, Esther, uh, the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned, yet it's obvious he's at work, faithfully caring for his people. And so this morning, what we're going to see in this final account is that uh, an example of reversal. There is a reversal that occurs here, and it's one of great proportions. So read. invite you to read with me starting in chapter 5. I want to pick up at verse 14, and we're going to go through chapter 7. So just uh, hope that you'll follow along. Chapter 5, verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning, in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, these, these servants somehow got crossed up and were going to assassinate the king. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court, the outer court of the king's palace, to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, 
For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man and whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were there, still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases your king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Hobana, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, 
which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. I invite you to pray with me. Oh, great God, with all sincerity, we are thankful for your word and for this story. And we pray that you would speak to us to encourage us to think about what we've read and to remember that you are a sovereign God. And in your providence, you've proven to be faithful. Teach us for our learning to walk in faith with you, bringing you glory as your witnesses and servants, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the middle of his junior year of high school, the coach called his name to return the opening kickoff. He was so excited, he finally was getting his chance. Nervous, stomach full of butterflies, he trotted onto the field. Once the ref blew the whistle, the kicker sent the ball into the air and it came to him. And after a clean catch, he began running, following his blockers just as fast as he could run and he never saw it coming. Wham! Someone hit him with such force it felt like he was running without his head. And all he could remember was hearing fans cheering. And the most remarkable thing happened. On his very first chance to return a kick, he returned the kick for a touchdown. Unfortunately, little did he know after the hit spun him around, my dad unknowingly ran the ball into his own end zone. And in his mind, it was a complete reversal of what he had expected. Instead of hearing praises from his teammates and fans, what he heard was a combination of yelling and laughter. In our text, God turns the tables. Mordecai is honored and Haman is hanged. Let's go through the story very quickly. If you'll remember a powerful Persian king, Ahasuerus searches for a new queen and his methodology for finding her is rather sick. A Persian beauty contest is set into motion and all of the finest, most beautiful young virgin women in Persia are sought and brought to the king's palace. After 12 months of beauty and fashion preparations, each female contestant was given her opportunity of spending the night with the king with the grand prize for winning the contest to be named Mrs. Persia. She becomes queen. And the Bible says that Esther finds favor with King Ahasuerus and she wins and begins living in the palace. Like every good story, there is a villain. His name is Haman. He's promoted to serve as the king's kind of a political combination of his press secretary, chief of staff, and vice president all rolled into one. Everyone in the kingdom knows to bow and to praise Haman. It's the law. Everyone that is except for one little insignificant Jewish gentleman named Mordecai 
who just so happens to be first cousin to the new queen. In fact, the Bible says earlier, many years before, that when Esther's mother and father both died and she was orphaned, that Mordecai took her in, adopted her, and raised her, and loved her as if she was his own daughter. Mordecai's refusal to bow in honor and praise Haman, eats at Haman, makes him furious, causes him to become bitter, to the point that Haman's anger turns to such hate that he begins politically to maneuver and to do set in motion a decree, a law by this passive king who's unable to make good decisions to annihilate, to kill, and to, to destroy every Jew on the face of the planet throughout the entire Persian Empire. That in one day, one day with one great slaughter, this act of genocide would be leveled against all Jews, young and old, Males and females, women and children alike, all in one great swoop would be wiped out. Again, King Ahasuerus, he goes along with it. He yields to Haman's recommendation, makes the decree, the genocide is the law, and the Jewish people have 11 months to get their houses in order before they're destroyed. But God is at work behind the scenes, below the surface. Queen Esther, being Jewish herself, is also facing the certain threat of death. And by the encouragement of Mordecai earlier, she decides to finally step up and do the right thing. Do you remember Mordecai's challenge to her? In chapter 4, verse 14, if you have your Bible, just he says this to her. Esther, if you remain completely silent... Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. But Esther, who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther responds, doesn't she? Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. She says to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In her subtlety, Esther develops a plan. Through a time of fasting and prayer and preparation, she goes to work. She involves leveraging her role as the queen. She leverages her beauty, her appearance that God had given her. She leverages her clothes, her demeanor, where she stands to be inside of the king, to get his attention. She prepares some amazing meals in advance. The old saying might have some truth to it that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And you remember the king who is so enamored with his king asks her in chapter 5, verse 3, Esther, baby, what is it that I can do for you? What's your request? Tell me what it is. The sky's the limit. And she says, well, i tell you what I'd like. If it'd be all right with you, I'd like for you to come to a dinner that I've prepared for you and, and bring your best buddy Haman with you. The king and Haman agreed to dine with the queen, and at the end of the evening, he asks her again in chapter 5, Hey, what can I do for you, Esther? 
You just tell me what it is. The sky's the limit. Anything you want. And she says again, if it'd be all right with you, what I'd like to humbly suggest is that we do this again tomorrow night. Could we have dinner again together? And Haman and the king agree. And Haman is so excited. Do you remember? He's finally arrived. He climbed the ladder to success. He's reached the pinnacle of his career and he's dining with the king of Persia and with the queen of Persia. It's a private dinner that he's included in and he's so excited. But do you remember Haman with all of his success? His pride prevents him from being happy and content. And that Mordecai, that one little insignificant Jewish man who refuses to bow and praise him and, and offer honor just eats at Haman over and over. He goes home and he tells this to his wife and friends. And you remember the advice they give him? Why don't you just get rid of it? Just get rid of him. Chapter 5, verse 14, our text began that Haman likes the idea and suggests and orders that this gallows be made 50 feet high. And the next morning, they'll hang Mordecai. The Bible says the gallows are built, and that's where our text begins this morning. It's the critical point of the entire story. This is the crescendo moment. Let me first suggest to you the king couldn't sleep. Someone has referred to this as providential insomnia. This is the same night earlier in the evening when Haman on his way home has a run-in with Mordecai. As he passes through the gate, chapter 5 verse 9 says that Haman saw Mordecai there and there was again no honor. No praise, and in a rage, it resulted in this gallows being constructed with the intent of hanging this Mordecai the very next morning. And so that night, when everyone is sleeping throughout the Persian Empire, neither Esther nor Mordecai have any clue what's about to happen. Esther doesn't know it. She couldn't run to the king in the middle of the night and prevent what's to happen the next morning. Mordecai couldn't pack his bags and catch the next train to Georgia. The story reminds me of those old Batman movies. Do you remember when Batman, my, he's captured and he's laying on his back and chained down to a giant table saw and that blade gets closer and closer to Batman and if Robin doesn't get there in time, Batman's a goner. Except in this story, it's much worse because poor old Mordecai doesn't even know what's happening. But God, right? God is aware, and while Esther and Mordecai are sound asleep, God was wide awake. And God made sure that King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep either. Maybe King Ahasuerus needed a CPAP machine, or maybe he had indigestion from all of Esther's cooking or too much wine. Whatever the case is, the fact of the matter is he could not sleep 
And it is no incidental fact. God uses this insomnia for his purpose. The Bible makes the point there seems to be an unseen power controlling this reversal that's about to occur. The actual Greek translation of this verse in the Greek Septuagint literally reads, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. Think about this. Haman's carefully crafted plans were turned against him simply because, simply because the king had a sleepless night. No one saw it coming except for the one who was making sure that it happened. What do you do when you can't sleep? Any of you have those sleepless nights? Do you lay there and toss and turn? Do you get up and drink a glass of warm milk? I don't know anybody who ever does that. <laughs> you get up like many used to do and clean house. You get up in the middle of the night and watch TV or maybe you never have that problem. Well, good for you. King Ahasuerus in his insomnia gets up and decides to read perhaps to read something on the boring side that might make him a little drowsy. And so he goes back and rereads the history records of the kingdom. And what? He reads it about an event, an event that occurred five years before. What are the chances? What are the odds of that? He read about this man in the kingdom five years before, who had intervened on his behalf and prevented his assassination. I read about a man this week who in the span, time span of less than four years was attacked by a shark, mauled by a grizzly bear, and bitten by a snake, and is still alive and still goes outside. <laughs> what are the odds of that and living to tell about it. What are the odds? What are the odds of King Ahasuerus on that night before Mordecai is to be hanged? What are the odds of him having insomnia, deciding to read the history books, and discovering how Mordecai saved his life five years earlier? Do you think the odds are a thousand to one, a million to one, a billion to one. When God is factored into the equation, the percentages change. And I believe the point is as Hazarus hears what God intends him to hear. Once the king discovers how he has been saved and who is responsible for saving his life? It stirs him up and he recognizes and realizes that Mordecai had never been thanked. Mordecai had never received any appreciation, any recognition. When is the last time that you can remember doing something good, serving, helping someone else and you were never acknowledged? Did you feel overlooked, unappreciated? 
The fact is, Jesus said, whenever we, as his followers, do anything for someone else, it's in fact, Jesus says, you're doing it unto me. That's our motivation. That's our reward, is that our God knows, and so we just continue to do the right thing and doing what God has called us to do. The story reminds us that God sees, he's aware, and he never forgets, and yes, promises to reward all of our deeds on that day. In the text, God works to ensure that Mordecai is recognized. We see the king couldn't sleep. We also see that the king sought for advice. The next morning, after a sleepless night and after his discovery, the king asks some questions. Hey, I was reading last night and I was made aware of something. What's been done for this guy, Mordecai, who saved my life? And the answer comes back, nothing has been done. And he asks another question. Who is in my court this morning? Are any of my advisors here? And they say, yeah, there's one who, he got here early this morning. Haman's there. Can you picture Haman's morning? Haman, that morning, has an agenda. He's motivated to get to work. His wife says, hey, I fixed you some breakfast, put some, some eggs, sausage there, some I'm about ready to pull some biscuits out of the oven. No, no, I'm good. I'll, get, I'll just grab a cup of coffee in the office. And he heads out the door. He has an agenda. He and the king both have something very similar going on in their heads. Both of them are thinking about Mordecai. <laughs> both these guys have Mordecai on their minds, and so does God. And in verse 5, the king says, hey, Send Haman in. And the king asks Haman a question, seeking some advice. I'd like to ask you your opinion. What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And this is so good, right? The plot begins to thicken. The king had insomnia. He sought for advice. Haman was there. Third, we see Haman's miscalculation, because in Haman world, you ever live there in Haman world, where everything is about you? In Haman world, he's thinking, of course, he's thinking of me. The king's about to honor me. I'm important. The king needs me. I'm pretty great. I deserve all of this. Kind of. Reminds us that we need to be careful with our thoughts and we don't think too high of ourselves nor do we think too low of ourselves. The one we need to be consumed with receiving honor is God. And let's be on guard from ever thinking that God owes me. God owes me something. Jesus said in the Gospels that whatever we do for the Lord as followers of Christ is simply our duty. And most important, we should be focused on God's goodness. Let me ask you this question. How long has it been since you said to someone, in sincerity, God has been good to me? You guys, you all remember 
I'm trying to switch from you guys to y'all. In the north, it's you guys. Here's y'all. So I'm getting there, right? So y'all, remember a few weeks ago, I had my pastor and his wife here that I answered my call to preach under. And one of the things I remember about Kurt, and it's true to this day, whenever you're around him, he, he, will, he will say this over and over and over. Oh, God has been good to me and Edda. Slash Paulie calls her Edda. God has been good to us. He's been so faithful to us. God has been so good. Do you ever say that to anyone? God has been so good to me, so good to us. He's been so faithful. That'd be a good thing to build into our normal daily conversation. And so as you can imagine, with great eagerness, Haman answers the king. What shall be done to the man whom the king delights in to honor? And Haman's, he's quick to respond. In Haman's world, this is me. O king, first pick out one of your royal outfits, your robes, and place it on the man. And go to your stables and pick out one of your finest steeds and place that man on that steed with the crest of Persia on that steed's head and have one of your officials, one of your dignitaries parade that man on that horse through the city and let that city, that, let that official declare publicly as he leads the man through the city. This is what happens to the man in whom the king delights. Sound like pretty good advice? King hears these suggestions and he responds to Haman. Oh, I like it. Let's do it. Let's do it all. Let's do it right now. He usually word, uses the word quickly. Hurry, let's, let's do this. And then comes the jaw dropper. Haman, I want you to do this. Do it quickly and do all that you have said. Let it all be done and do it all for Mordecai. And Haman, in case you don't know, Mordecai is this little Jewish man who sits outside of my gate. You'll find him there. And so do it all. Leave nothing undone which you have said. And then look at chapter 6, verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square. And Haman proclaimed before Mordecai, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you see that picture? Haman, the second highest Position in the kingdom with reins of this horse in his hand, with a royal crest on that horse's head, and Mordecai seated with the king's robe, and Haman is leading him around through the city, and Haman is declaring as he goes, This, this shall be done to the man in whom the king delights in. And I could just, I 
can just picture Mordecai. He's riding up on that horse, and he says, hey, Haman, say that again. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Perhaps Haman's wife, Zeresh, came into the market that morning to pick up some things, and as she goes through the city, she sees the commotion and, he, and, and hears her husband's voice. And it gets her attention. She slips over to him as, she's, as he's leading this horse to the city. And she says, what in the world are you doing, Haman? He says, I can't talk now. We'll, I'll tell you about it when we get home tonight. The king can't sleep. He sought advice. Haman miscalculates. And fourth, things for Haman get worse. Have you, you've heard that old phrase, things can always get worse. <laughs> they get worse. Once he gets home and he explains everything, his wife and Zeresh all gather and some of his counselors, and let me paraphrase what they say to him now. They say, baby, you're cooked. There's quite a contrast in chapter 5, verse 14, where Zeresh, his wife, and the family and the friends suggest, Haman, hang the guy. Build the gallows for him. And now in verse 13, they say, you're headed for a fall. This Jewish guy is going to bring you down. Baby, you're cooked. And just as they say that, the Bible says a limousine pulls up outside of Haman's house and the king's messengers get out, bring him to the limo and drive him to the king's palace for the second dinner with the king and Esther. It's a great reversal, a great reversal. In chapter 7, verse 1, Hazarus, Esther, and Haman are enjoying a nice dinner, uh, supper, right, if you're in Mississippi, dinner if you're in Michigan, but Haman, as they eat and as they dine this evening, it's not, it's, not, it's not as pleasurable, it's not as meaningful as the previous one because Haman's pretty distracted. He's had a rough day. And little does he know it's about to get worse. And while they're enjoying drinks, the Bible says, for the third time the king asks Esther with Haman at the table. Esther, I've asked you now this the third time. Is there anything you need? Anything that I can do for you? The sky's the limit. And Esther is no dummy. She's subtle. She's clever. She's wise. This is the moment she's been preparing for, and so she finally acts on Mordecai's challenge, do you remember, and takes her stand. Read with me verse 3 and 4 of chapter 7. The queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed. She's quoting from the edict. We've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She steps up. She finally says, what needed to be said. She accepts the challenge that had been given to her. She accepts the call that had been issued to her earlier by her cousin Mordecai. 
I wonder how many of us here this morning need to step up. Need to step up and take a stand for something that God has been calling you to do and you've been in a delay mode. And the disobedience to God is long enough. The writer to the Hebrews says, Today, as you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. However God may be speaking to you and however the Holy Spirit might be wooing you to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ or to bow your knee and your heart and say, Lord, you died on a cross for my sins and so I'm compelled. I'm constrained to serve you and to surrender my all to you and to begin to live for you and serve you with abandon. Is that true of any of you this morning? To step up and use your time and your abilities and your gifts and your talents to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, your Savior, with all that you have? Esther finally takes her stand, makes the request, and the king listens and answers and says, What? Who would do such a thing? Where is this person? Haman's at the table. And his heart begins to sink. His bad day is about to get worse. Kind of reminds me of that little children's book, Alexander. Any of you read about Alexander's day? Alexander, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It's a classic. You should read it sometime. <laughs> Esther says, the adversary, the enemy, is this wicked man, Haman. And the Bible says that Haman is terrified, full of terror. And the king explodes, flies off into a, a rage. Have you ever been so angry in a situation that you literally had to get up and just walk away? Ahasuerus is so angry, he leaves the room, goes outside, and Hester, Esther and Haman are standing there staring at one another, and Haman is surely thinking, I attended the first private dinner with thoughts that I'm important. Now, here at this second dinner, I realize I'm being exposed. Do you remember hearing, be careful? For your sins will find you out. Be careful, your sins will find you out. Jesus says regarding those who follow him, those, who, those whom he loves, he says what is being done in the dark will be brought into the light by God's grace. Without any other recourse, I'm thinking Haman hits his knees, throws himself on Esther's mercy, and when the king reenters the room, it's curtains for Haman. The Bible says they cover Haman's face and the king orders Haman's death. Hang him. Hang him on the gallows. Oh, what a difference a day can make. Those gallows that were intended for Mordecai served to his own destruction. Can you imagine being Haman's parents? 
Ever thought of that? Haman's mother, Haman's dad. Loved that little boy, Haman, raised him, prepared him for life, raised him to be a success, to make something of himself, to achieve greatness, and Haman measured up. He, he achieved success. He, he reached it. I'm sure those parents were proud of Haman and all that he had accomplished. But never could those parents have imagined that their son's life would end like this. Listen to me. I want to ask every mom and every dad in this audience, every grandparent that's here, what do you hope for your kids? What are you raising them for? What is it that you hope they'll achieve and accomplish more than anything else in life? You need to be clear on that question. You need to be clear. And I can tell you how I'd answer that. If someone were to ask me that question, I would answer that from 3 John verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Because I know this, if they're right with Jesus, if our kids and our grandkids grow up and love the Lord God and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ with faith, you can be sure that everything else in their life will order itself. Now for the end of the story. It's one of the great reversals of the Bible. Haman is hanged, he dies, and Esther and Mordecai and God's people are saved. The enemy plans to rob, to kill, and to destroy, but God intends to give life. C.S. Lewis once said, coincidences are God's way of being kept anonymous. And so consider the coincidences. Was it a coincidence that Esther was Jewish and beautiful? Was it a coincidence that Esther was favored and chosen by the king? Was it a coincidence that Mordecai just so happens to hear of that assassination plot? And was it a coincidence that Mordecai's name made it into the history records of Persia? And was it just a coincidence that the night before Mordecai is to be hanged that the king read about Mordecai's great act? Was it a coincidence that when Haman set the date for 11 months for those Jews to be destroyed? And is it a coincidence that Esther just so happens is given permission to approach the king? Is it just a coincidence that the gallows that Haman intended for Mordecai turned upon Haman? Is it just a coincidence that Haman was in the king's court early that morning? Is it just a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep that very night? And could it be a coincidence that Haman was the one who advised the king on how to honor the man? You see, this is all not just coincidental. 
It's not all just by chance. It's not just luck. Mordecai, Esther, Haman, Ahasuerus, even Queen Vashti, they weren't robots. They weren't robots that were just pre-programmed by God. They're real people just like you and me who make choices, who make decisions every day of our lives. We use the freedom that God gives us to choose and to make decisions. But God mysteriously in his providence still works through all of that, both good and evil. He weaves it all together for his glory, for our good. God is at work in this story while he is never mentioned, behind the scenes, below the surface, working. And so as we close, let me share just a few things for application. First, God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life. God is at work in you. God is at work through you for his glory and for your good. And you may not see it. You may not recognize it. You may not feel it, sense it at all. But he is at work. God is at work in your life, working for your good and for his glory, even when you and I sin. He's still faithful somehow, mysteriously, to work all things together for our good. Second, God is not only at work in you and in us, God often works in strange ways. Amen? A young Jewish orphan girl was raised up to become the queen of Persia, to serve God's purposes, to be an advocate for her people and for good. God works in strange ways. And I can tell you something else I've also learned. God's timing. And when he works, and not only works in strange ways, but when he works, it will be seldom according to my timing. How many of you, how many of you could say amen? God's timing is usually always very different than my timing. Third, our God is the God of reversals. You know what that means? It means that God is a God of new beginnings. He can change things. He can turn things. He can transform people's lives. Aren't you glad for that? He's changed me. He's continuing to change me. There's a little, little sign, little thing I have on my desk, and it says, be patient with me. God's not finished yet. He's in the transformation work. He changes, reverses, brings about new beginnings. That's why I like to see people and hear people's testimonies. And I like to see people baptized and hearing their stories of how God worked to bring them to faith, how God worked to bring salvation and life to them. It's just a, just a, a visible and a reminder to, to, to know that God is a God of reversals. Fourth, I would say pay attention to coincidences in your life. Pay attention to coincidences. Could it be that through these coincidences that God really is orchestrating things and working in your life to bless you, to get your attention? Pay attention to coincidences. And fifth, I mentioned this earlier, I want to challenge you to be more intentional about talking 
and sharing with other people about God's goodness and his faithfulness to you. It would be good to start in our own marriages, in our own homes, and just, God, God has been good. Yeah, yes, there's, there's been some hurts. Yes, there's been some frustrations. Yes, there's been some disappointments. There's been some losses, but in it all, God has been good. Amen. Amen. He has been faithful to me. Faithful to us. Good to us. God in his grace one day called your name. And drew you unto himself. Convicted you of your sin and of his righteousness and judgment. And delivered from sin and death made us heirs, co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ and promised us an inheritance. Think about it. There's a coming inheritance awaiting all of us who know Jesus, an inheritance that is undefiled, that never fades, that's being kept for us in glory. And I'm going to see my dad. I'm going to see my grandparents going to see Jesus that's our inheritance God God has been good to us and so with that in mind let me ask you this how how can any follower of the Lord Jesus Christ say no Lord I'm not going to serve you no Lord I'm not going to live for you no, Lord, I'm not going to yield my life to you. I just, I just don't understand it. It just makes no sense. Really, it's an oxymoron. No, Lord. Think about that. No, Lord. Hillcrest, let's give our very best to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give him our best. First chair. First chair. I invite you to pray with me.